You you will just say some questions and I will say. I'll just say some questions and you'll say whatever comes up. Okay. And there's no censorship and no editing. Okay. I'm here in the Sadler's Wells coffee shop in the Lillian Bayliss area with my friend Frank Webster, who has a book in front of you entitled What Frank? Vintage. Uh, this is uh, William Faulkner as I lay dying. Oh, when I, so vintage Faulkner. Yes. As I lay dying. An interesting typeface for the title they've got. Is he one of your long-time faves, or is he a new discovery? Um, he's not new, Faulkner, actually, to me. Um, I read uh, the book, that's the central character is Joe Christmas, and I've forgotten its title now. Uh, light, light in August. Late in August, some years ago. Right. And actually, I knew nothing about him. But then I read Absalom, Absalom relatively oh, yeah. recently. Right. Again, um, serendipitously. But uh, I'm astonished by the choice in effect. I mean, Faulkner is very hard work to a reader, isn't he? It's yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet he was a Hollywood screenwriter. I know. Amazing. <laughs> I, I, I but he, uh, yeah, it's not as. You don't sit around reading Faulkner and think uh, it's a nice little story. It's pretty grim. This is especially grim, yeah. and I'm getting towards the end of it. But it's also hard work. It takes a lot of concentration yeah. to get into these highly, you know, perceptions, these lots of subjectivities in play. Yeah. But I felt um, it's a way of saying what I'm doing in my life now. Mm -hmm. um, I retired shortly after my 63rd birthday in November last. Hooray! And uh, one of the things that liberated me to do uh, is to read. Not so much to read social science, well, I do read a lot of social history, biographies, but I wanted to, I did not want to die when there were major books that I had not really read, yeah, yeah. and Faulkner was somebody I had, actually, I would say about Joyce, I've never read Ulysses, isn't that shocking, 63 years, I've never read Ulysses, I mean, I studied uh, Portrait of the Artist as a young man at school, and I did reread that book. recently, a great book. And got much more out of it. Stephen That's exactly That's right. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. And um, there's a whole range of people I just want to read. And I, I think it's one of the paradoxes of many academics. I don't think this is particularly new, is that we're in the literature business, but we actually don't yes, have time nice. to read. Maybe we could when we used to have the long holidays and there was none of the huge pressure to publish yeah. or perish. But now more and more, it seems to me, um, I'm talking about the last 20 years of my career, i got relatively little time to appreciatively read books. And that's even in my own sphere. And the idea of reading literature, um, the great uh, canonical works, if I may use that word, mm -hmm. um, that was just not really possible, except I'd save up for my you know, annual two weeks somewhere mm -hmm. in a warm country and I'd read three or four novels. Yeah. But I, one of the things I'm liberated to do now is try to read people appreciatively. Yeah. Um, and in the past, I mean, academic works, there are very few people, uh, I think, professionally, that we seriously take time out because you're so busy teaching and writing yourself, supervising, all sorts of things. So even people like... Uh, People I've read most appreciatively in recent, in recent years would be, say, Manuel Castell. It took me a lot of time. People write, you know, four or five hundred page books, a trilogy comes out. That's a lot of time to do it when you're serving on committees and getting whatnot. Sure. So I'm liberated for that. That's one of the things I'm doing now. It used to be said of Lisa Curry, the erstwhile Australian swimmer. I don't think she ever won an Olympic gold medal or medal, but she won the Commonwealth Games medals. Was it she'd written more 
books than she had read, and in fact had written five autobiographies. And the only book she could claim to have read was the Contiki Expedition, which everybody had read, who was born in the 1950s. Yes. In any event, that's very, very interesting, because I wonder whether you might have written more books than you've read in some years, almost, because you're well, so productive. I, I think, well, it's very kind to say so. Um, I actually think it's not an idiosyncratic thing. I think uh, I once read a, a snippet from Tony Giddens interviewed in The Guardian, and um, some people I knew were outraged, but I, he was exactly right. The, I think the, uh, the journalist had asked him to name books that had influenced him, and he said, well, productive academics don't read books. Um, they use them. And he did not mean this in a prejudicial way, and of course I don't suggest you never read books, but uh, what you do is use books to produce your next article or what have you. And he went on actually to nominate things to read. I remember, this is years and years ago too, Keeping was an essay by Max Weber, uh, Politics as a Vocation. Right. It, it wasn't a book, although it's a long essay. I was very interested in that, and his argument was, you just don't have time nowadays to read. I mean, over-exaggerating that, because come on. You know, uh, I'm a sociologist, and I'd be astonished if I met people who say I hadn't read C. Wright Mill's Sociological Imagination or Emil Durkheim's Suicide. But you know what I mean? Once you're at a certain level in a university, you are pretty well packed. And the idea of saying, I'm at home now, and the next three weeks I'm just going to read this book, it's one book, uh, and I'm going to really read it and come to grips with it and critique it, it's pretty hard to take because you've usually got a mountain of literature to get through and you've got lots of other demands on your time. And they didn't like that. It wasn't the reason I retired, but it's one of the things I uh, really like about being at home. Not only that I can time to read, but I can have this uh, eclectic, un undirected reading. Mm. So I might read reviews now and... Uh, of a, of a book in sociology, and think, well, I don't have to read that book anymore, you know, because I'm not going to have conversations about it. I can see something, I don't know, uh, a social history book, or I just picked up, and I noticed it's come out in paperback, and it was warmly recommended to me, uh, Alan Johnson, who was a home secretary. At Les School at uh, 15. And yeah, was it's a called This Boy for Beatle lovers, you remember one of the this nicer boy Beatles. That's wants you back again. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Toby. It was a B side. This dates you. B side but, uh, of please, please, man. But uh, you know, I'm going to really read that, yeah. and I find that very interesting. By the way, very much a contemporary of mine. It's a couple of years older. That's all. But uh, it just shows the gradations of class. I come from a very traditional working class family, four kids. Dad was the sole earner, pit village in the northeast of England. And, you know, and I look back, I think, gosh, you know, materially we didn't have lots of things. But wow, Alan Johnson had so much disadvantage. Terrible father struggle within the family. Yep, wasn't father there. walked out. His yeah. mum died when he was like 12 years old. His and his 16 year old sister brought him out. withstood the social services yeah. and managed to persuade yeah. the social worker to let them alone, really. I find that remarkable. And what an admirable, gosh, the guy comes home secretary. Uh, what an admirable turnout. Um, um, and anyway, I'm reading that because, you know, yeah. friends had recommended it. A friend that I saw a couple of weeks ago said, this is wonderful biography, which is actually not very political, uh, very well written and constructed. And I think if I'd been back in my office, I wouldn't have had time to read that. I might have read an extract in a Sunday newspaper. That would be it. So I'm reading appreciatively, and uh, I'm also doing uh, things I should have done much more of my share of, which is... I'm effectively um, the house um, 
I want to say house husband, that's too strong a word. But, you know, I have my daughter is currently back home. My niece is living with us. They're both in their 20s. And my wife still works. So I'm doing most of the cooking for the first time in my life. I've always cooked, but I've never done the household stuff. I quite enjoy that. Although it stops me reading the novels. <laughs> <laughs> You're discovering the second shift. Yes, right? exactly, exactly. But Not uh, as a theoretical It's very construct. nice. It's very nice. Yeah. I could say this also to... Uh, because I know you're a fellow runner. Um, I've always ran, and I'm sure you have. But um, oh, there are lots of idiosyncrasies about running, and I'm not as probably as active as you are. But I would, from my early 20s, when I realised I was never getting any exercise, I decided I'd go running, and I'd probably go two or three times a week for my career. Never very far, never very fast, and always when I could, you know. Um, I've always been too uh, modest to do it from the, the office, go out, down, <laughs> running down from City University down to the uh, canal and along. Um, so I've always done this at times, but being retired, I still get up at the same time, get up at 6.30, Liz goes off to work, and I go out for a run, and I can I just run for an hour, um, and uh, that's probably, that's actually less, 50 minutes, and I run about five miles, and I really like that, actually. I don't particularly enjoy the running, but I like the feeling of being much fitter than I was. Mm. And then, of course, I sit about and read novels the rest <laughs> of the day, in between cleaning the house and, and doing the food. But, um, I, yes, it's been very good to, to feel a bit fitter um, and to do that. And one of the books I read, in fact, I bet you know uh, Murakami's book, mm -hmm. which I've forgotten the title, but it's What I Think About, or is it What I Think About... Or When, when I, I Run. When I Run. Something like that. I yeah, really yeah. recommend yeah. that. Yeah. And um, Guy After My Own Heart, he does, about, he does six miles... A day six days a week he says I run for an hour which I reckon he must do about my pace but he runs marathons which I have no intention to do you run marathons I couldn't do that I've never done it but I'm enjoying that and it is just having um, this space to read uh, space to exercise and also having no agendas no no demands on yeah. the time and sure this is only being what three months three or four months I may in another year, I say, oh, I want to write another book, or what have you. Um, but I really don't particularly feel uh, What I did do, um, I forgot precisely the dates, but I guess it would be about last July. I finished uh, something I thought I would never do uh, after the last edition, the third edition, came out in 2006, the Theories of the Information Society. And then I'd started, at that point, writing a book on democratization and information. Uh, something I'd been teaching at a postgraduate course for some years at City, and uh, I was much taken by, you know, the notion of an informed citizenry, citizenry and how do people mm. get informed, what are the sources of that information, uh, what's the reliability of it. And uh, I was also struck by Freud's up and down the um, growth of democratization around the world. Uh, indeed, maybe it's a bit extreme to say this, but I don't think so. Um, in this postmodern world, the difference is the notion of democracy. I know there are problems in finding that, but the notion of democracy seems to be the one universal, universally good thing. Um, uh, now, people use the term in rather different terms, and I would write about that at some length. But I was interested in that problematic mm. democratization of information. 
and I'd written about 30,000 words of this book. But um, what happened was I kept coming up against the recurrent question, which I thought had long disappeared, the current issue, which was persistent claims that democracy was going to be transformed by new technology. Um, currently, it was social media. You know, this was all going to be, oh, the Arab Spring, and people would be on their mobile phone showing these pictures. There would be instant globalized uh, communication. They'd be these horizontal forms, as Manuel Castells says, this was leveling, giving people access to it. And of course, much of this literature is very serious, and, and I, I admire it and use it. But I was really struck by the technology agenda coming back and insisting on being there. This was the same agenda I'd addressed in Theories of Information Society. And if it wasn't technology as, you know, the mighty micro of the first wave, the internet later, and currently social media, it was also about new types of workers. It was a technocratic vision of sort of knowledge workers, information workers. These were going to set the group. And this, as my view was, well, this is um, not the starting point to understand the world today. You shouldn't start with this approach because it inevitably gets you into a position of assuming an asocial phenomenon, technology, knowledge workers, somehow have arrived without explanation on the scene and are yet going to have massive impact at your work. The Use the Information Society have been written against that agenda yeah. uh, so long ago. I think last time we met, one of the things I said was how I found it rather depressing that one had been writing this in this first edition in the early 90s when I was writing it, and it's still there. And many other people have criticized this view, but wow, it is so powerful as a, as a, a framer of so much discussion. But for me, I'm starting to write this book on democratization, and the editor um, from Routledge, uh, Gerhard Boomgarden, said, would you do a fourth edition? this book, which I hadn't done for eight years. Theories I, of the Information Society. Theories of the Information Society. So I thought, well, I don't have to then write a new book and tout it around to publishers. I wouldn't have thought it would be too difficult. So I just actually rewrote Theories of the Information Society. It's quite radically different. It's much longer than the previous one. So it's another 25% long. It's 170,000 words. But I framed it. There's obviously new stuff in it, but I've tried to in inject lots of this discussion about democratization right. into that book because it just seems to me the biggest problem is I wouldn't start where you are. I, I wouldn't start with talking about democratization and information. I wouldn't start with Yippee, you know, the Libyan overthrow of Yippee, the, um, uh, uh, the Arab Spring, wonderful things happening with the Occupy movement, and it's all to do, not all to do, but massively to do with this technology, I wouldn't start with that. I'd start with much broader contexts. And that's why in the book, I still um, set out the chapters by theories and thinkers who have things to say about contemporary social change. And I try in that mm. to talk about what they say about it in terms of information. In that. Um, there are big differences, of course. Do you want me to continue talking? That's about great. Okay. Now, that, that is now, almost a new book. And it is. Is it, is it out now or shortly? It's out, to in, be? It's out at the middle of March, so it should be in about two or three weeks. Uh, We're and, in 2014. Uh, 2014, yes, and it will be out imminently soon. And the, yeah, I, I, it's totally rewritten. It's a radically different book uh, mm -hmm. in some respects. Of course, there are some continuities. But um, I've put a chapter in 
about Hayek and the Neo Hayekians, mm. which is a long chapter. And uh, I'm slightly embarrassed that I didn't engage with that before, simply because it's like myopically closing one's eyes to the winners, frankly, over the last 30 years of neoliberalism. But not only that, of course, Hayek has a conception of information mm. radically different. Capitalism is an information system, uh, radically different from all these other thinkers. He articulated it in the 40s, quite explicitly, in knowledge and information. I forgot, is it the American, so American Economics Review article? Um, I've forgotten the precise title, Knowledge in the Economy or something like that, but he has a whole view of that. And the neo-Hayekians, which I find really interesting, is this notion of crowdsourcing, the, the, um, uh, you know, the, the idea that there's lots of knowledge out in the society, but you can actually, through crowdsourcing, get this better stuff. Uh, and it's quite explicitly Hayekian in Jimmy Wales is talking about Wikipedia, for right, example, right, quite, right. quite explicitly so. And um, I wanted to engage with that because it's so much of the moment of a lot of enthusiasm written about uh, uh, informational trends that somehow this, uh, you know, is overthrowing expertise, is again empowering the ordinary mm. people. Um, and I also think, actually, Hayek is a very serious, uh, also a clear thinker, is well worth entertaining as a, at an intellectual level, mm. but also given the neoliberal triumph around the world, I think it behoves us to study that. Mm. So there's a long chapter on that. Uh, and that's I put new. It, yes, that's totally new. And that's uh, contrasted with uh, a whole long chapter, the longest chapter in the book, by uh, the way, of, uh, on uh, Habermas and the public sphere. I try to take that up. And um, one way it's taken up is the contrasting chapter with Hayek just has no time for this at all, you know. Uh, uh, but it's also a useful way is to remind people that Habermas thought the public sphere would come out of, as it did, the bourgeois public sphere, come out of capitalist, capitalist relationships. I don't entertain that, but it reminds people who, I think there's too much written, too much acceptance of the conception of the public sphere by many of our thinkers. Uh, reading Habermas in a very abstract way, his actual exposition of that work is very historical. Um, and so I on the one hand contrast it with Hayek but I also in the longest chapter of the book as I say on the notion really the history of the public sphere I come to conclusions which I I can boldly remember them it is I think we should jettison the conception of the public sphere I think it's um, for lots of reasons actually um, I think on the one hand it's got uh, enmeshed with for good political reasons, with public service institutions who claim that they're key part of the public sphere, and I think that's a bit tendentious. Um, it's also been undermined by globalization, fragmentation of audiences uh, around the world, by frankly the failings. For example, public service broadcasting still full of Oxbridge men. Um, all sorts of reasons why the public sphere defenders in terms of public service institutions, state-funded, is really problematic. So I've tried to say, really, uh, I'm a big supporter of public service institutions, particularly information institutions, pay for out of tax, but I don't think these constitute a public uh, sphere. I think we should be saying, yeah, we should support public libraries, we should support the PwC, because they do a better service than out-and-out -out market system. But I think it's a bit much to start talking in the 21st century 
about some public sphere, which was very much grounded in the nation state and the limitations of that. Uh, but I'm a supporter of public service institutions. And frankly, I now think about information. We should just be talking about getting it out into the public domain. It won't be this sort of neat, you know, sphere where people rationally debate one another. I just don't see that uh, as feasible. Except, I hope this is not getting too uh, uh, roundabout, this explanation. I have a narrow conception of the public sphere, which is the political public sphere. I think that's defensible because politics are still, for most part, are carried out within nation-states democratic politics. And I think the political public sphere, we can talk about it there. What I resist is people who talk about the cultural public sphere, uh, the emotional public sphere. It's a sort of promiscuity of use in that. The political public sphere is where electoral politics practice. And there, I'm quite happy to defend subsidy of parties, uh, the rights to get uh, program in the terms of equalizing debate but um, that was a very brief review of the chapter which must be 30,000 words <laughs> in length and it's reflected my um, turmoil with the conception of public sphere because I've been so much drawn to it over the years but I think it's past its sell-by dates and when people start talking about uh, public sphere in terms of uh, Spherecules like Todd Gitlin does, and you know, virtually anything can, can be the public sphere. I just think it's past it, it's not very useful. So, that's one of the new things. There's a new chapter on mobilities, which builds upon a reworking of, of uh, Castells's work, which I much admire. But the mobilities tries to widen that into issues, so I try to engage with Barry Wellman's work and John Erie's work, and this enthusiasm again for this notion that we live in this particularly mobile society products, people, as well as information, of course. And I do, in the book, come clean about, um, I guess, uh, a person that I don't think is admired enough, which is Herb Schiller. And uh, I try, especially in the final chapter, to uh, say, yeah, you know, people now, so Schiller wasn't much of a theorist, you know. Uh, Schiller, a bit of an economic determinist. And all this sort of thing. What I celebrate about Schiller is his eye to substantive reality, you know, his ability to say what's going on in here, uh, to ask questions, not what's information going to do to us, but what are we doing to information. Uh, like that. And so I try to, um, I think this to a certain extent in the earlier edition, I agree. 2006, but much more clearly to say, if you want me to nail my colours to the mast, I think uh, Herb Schiller is well worth remembering, actually, for the sort of work and insight he brought to it, albeit that Herb was not a sophisticated theorist, but wow, how he alerted us to differences about and important aspects about information. Information inequality between nations within nations within classes. So that occupied me the last couple of years doing that and uh, I finished that in the summer I think books out this March 2014 and I have no real desire <laughs> to write anything now uh, I just want to absorb a lot of literature and make some nice meals and, yeah and what's so, your, what is your sort of recommended favorite new recipe at the moment yeah Wow, that's a really good question because I've got to tell you, Toby, this is terrible putting it on. He tickled his tummy when I said that. Uh, listeners. I eat, I don't eat so much, but I eat better. 
But what I've discovered is that I could always cook uh, basic foods, but I never realized how important, in terms of cuisine, I, how important are recipes and how I need recipes. And I collect recipes now, like cutting them out of the common supplements. And I look through cookbooks, and I have to say, the internet is very useful on this because if you have, I don't know, piece of beef or something and you want to make something interesting with it, you can look up on the internet. So you ask me what my favourite recipe is. Actually, off the top of my head, I wouldn't give particular... I quite like uh, vegetarian moussaka. I do that quite well. I've always liked pasta, so pasta dishes I can make. But, you know, from the basic to getting a much more interesting, you need a recipe. And if you said to me, which of the recipes, I really don't know. I really don't know because I use them and then I find them away. But I can never recall them. I think now, though, um, I'm very interested in the level, notion of skill in our society. You know, maybe sort of a crisis of confidence ourselves. Like, what skill do I have? You know, as an intellectual, what the hell can we do? Somebody comes what is to it house. exactly that you do? <laughs> well, that's right. Think work. We do. But uh, think you wank, know, did think you work. Think work. <laughs> um, you know, people come to your house and they're journeyman carpenters and you think oh, they really have a skill you know they look in there they sketch something and then they produce a nice fitted cupboard for you and what have you um, and you know you compare that to a lot of people who do white collar work and who are doing in my view when you look at the detail of it they're not doing very skilled work at all they've got a jacket on and a tie or more likely a blouse and a skirt but the work that they're doing is pretty mundane uh, on the whole um, but actually, we should reevaluate uh, just domesticity and skill. And um, I've lived a very happy life um, and a full life, but of course, courtesy of being de-skilled. I never had the skills to start with, I never learned the skills, but courtesy of modern consumer capitalism means I can go to the store and buy prepared meals or food that basically, you know, you take off the wrap and you put it in the oven and you peel a few potatoes, and that's it. That's pretty considerable skills of producing uh, a varied diet on limited budgets, you know. Of course, massively time-demanding, uh, but, you know, doing cooking in recent years, uh, recent months, has made me think very much of those days when my mum, one day a week, would be washing. Deplorable hard work, you know, before the washing machine. But also, one day a week was always baking. Baking day, you know, baking the bread for the week, baking cakes, and baking pies, and what have you. And uh, here I am at 63, having to look in recipe books how to make pastry, you know, and what have you. So actually, it's an interesting... I know academics uh, always make some sort of interesting, uh, interesting, perhaps only to themselves, about what do we mean by skills. But there's been a lot of de-skilling in our domestic lives, you know, and just... It's not me that has said this, I mean, but uh, you know, making clothes, for example, uh, making attractive clothes. Uh, of course, it's niche, and it tends to be rather privileged middle-class people who do this, and here's a middle, privileged middle-class person on a good page. I can uh, spend my time doing cooking. But I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying the sense of creating good food. You know, uh, good food, which is reasonably sophisticated. But I do need those recipes. My mother never seemed to check recipes when she was baking. <laughs> now, you've mentioned your family a wee bit and talked about how probably times were complicated economically. 
Mm. I wonder if you could tell us what sort of influence politically and intellectually your upbringing has had on you. Yes. Um, I was born at the end of 1950 in the northeast of England in a mining village of about 400 houses called, called New Cowndon, C-O-U-N-D-O-N. It's a hamlet. Uh, the local village, it's still a village, probably six or 7,000 people, is called Cowndon. It's deeply depressed, deeply deindustrialized, high unemployment, uh, culturally uh, weakened massively. Um, but specifically in the home, my father was a railway signalman uh, who's he's basically his life was he was born in 1920 um, he left school he went to a grammar school he left school in the deepest recession uh, the 1930s in one of the areas that was most deeply uh, damaged and uh, to get a position he joined the Royal Navy and unfortunately for him he joined at age 15 and then the war broke out when he was 18 he served in the war right through till 46 he was demobilized, came back to Durham and came away with signalman, and that was his life. Right. But I was brought up in this home, and Dad, like so many of his generation, and yours is probably the same, uh, was demobilized, married quickly, four children, one after the other, uh, between 1947 and 19, uh, beginning of 1954, my youngest sister was born, and we had four, four children. But Dad was a huge influence on us. He was... Uh, uh, a union activist uh, who was the general secretary of the National Union of Railwaymen, which was the biggest branch in the country then because it was it, uh, Camden was near uh, Shildon, which had a great big railway workshop. And these were members of the NUR as it was then. Um, and I have vivid memories of my father uh, working but spending lots and lots of time on union business. Not the sort of stereotypical, oh, you know, a strike. I think my dad lost one day in 38 years on the railway. Before, incidentally, he was made redundant, age 64, one year before retirement. The funniest side of it was that he worked with two other men. Three of them were in the, the cabin, keeping a 24-hour service going. And uh, the good old union agreement, when it was scheduled to be um, closed, they weren't all three going to lose their jobs. I don't know why that. Presumably they were being amalgamated with another cabinet. Last in, first out. Last in, first out. But my dad, who'd had 38 years, years, was he, junior. He, no, he went because his mate, who'd had something like 30 years, had still a 16-year-old child. Oh, so dad, bless. and he was quite happy to go. Uh, well, you know, I, I still thought it was a shabby way to finish someone's work. But nonetheless, he did lots and lots of work in unions. So the family I was brought up in was always labor. Now, Dad was a, a very moderate labor person, uh, well-educated, did lots of extramural classes, uh, and, uh, you know, was that sort of respectable working class mm. person, not into rhetoric, just doing heavy work, and lots of compensation with his members. And if it, if it influenced me, that home and that family, you know, one never knows. Um, with retrospection, sometimes, you know, there's always that danger of looking back and a strong sense of community, you know. The community's downside was, of course, grammar school boys, my brother and myself, my younger sister, all 
went to good universities and left, of course, the area. It's the first thing you do because the jobs aren't there. There's always that sense of it's pulling against the community, you know, the inhibitions. But the other side to it is it's a very positive, you know, a sense of solidarity, a sense of helping people out, uh, a sense that, um, you know, um, people have a responsibility to put in what they can to work the best, but they shouldn't then say, it's just for me. I mean, there's a sense that you owe the wider society. So I feel that very much in my politics. I smirked as that, there's somebody I much admire, but I never met him, the great late Bill Shankly from Liverpool, uh, Liverpool foot soccer manager, uh, um, who sadly died in his late 60s. But he talked about his idea of socialism, and it's not so far from mine, which is, his idea of socialism was really Liverpool Football Club that he managed, which was, you know, everybody puts in the best they can, but everybody for the team, everybody supports one another. And he says in now uh, a quote that's available on T-shirts, I see, um, uh, the philosophy footballers, uh, to that effect. My idea of socialism is people pulling together and being looked after. And I do think that strong sense of community I was brought up with, and it did. Um, of course, I've been away from it many years in practice. I mean, my mother is still alive up there, and she's 98 years old. But um, I've been away for many years, but I do feel that quite visceral, actually. Um, it's 30 years ago now since the outbreak of the miners' strike in 84 that we now know, and we knew very quickly, even during and afterwards, that it was prepared for by the Thatcher government to break that union. They used, they marshaled the state to break it. The consequence is a decimation of coal mining in this country, a decimation of those villages, which is not to say, oh, we, they were all great there, but what is left now is massive unemployment, demoralization, criminality, which I never experienced as a young man in there. You know, it is a myth, but it's a half-truth in the sense of myth. That, you know, you didn't have to lock your back doors. Know what people are. This the consequences of this are being huge. Uh, being huge. And I remember that when I was thinking about that 30 years, I had a quite a visceral response of supporting for the miners. For all I'd been away from it and living a very middle class lifestyle, I just felt these are my sort of people. I did feel that very much, and I still feel it now. And um, there was something really cruel about what happened. Cruel and calculated. And of course, what was launched on them and breaking the union in this country. Whatever the ins and outs and problems with Scargill are doubtless there. Arthur Scargill was the leader of the National Union of Mine Workers at the time of this strike in the 1980s. Yes. Whatever the criticisms one make of that there, what it unleashed in this country, uh, and of course there were similar trends in the United States, uh, what it unleashed in this country is this explosion of the market, of marketization, this expansion of it both intensively and extensively. So much so, because when one, one, one talks like this, people think, oh, this is a terribly radical thing to say. It's amazing to just think back, you know, things like the railways being privatized, they're no better service. Public utilities, you know, our energy supply, our Water. our electricity, our water, they've been privatized. The service is no better at all, but the market is intruded in such a way. People in the US are astonished, A, that you can commodify football jerseys and referees' jerseys, and B, that you can privatize water. Yes, privatization of water, yes. 
And what we've witnessed in that is uh, the occasional shrieks about uh, excessive salaries at those at the top. But I don't think anyone would say a better service. And one could go through the list. This wasn't radical to have about 10, 15% of the economy, which was oh. nationalised. It wasn't particularly Take radical that telecoms, post office has just been nationalised. It was never, sorry, denationalised. It was never nationalised. It was set up as a I state organisation. David Edgar saying too in 2000, it's mm -hmm. the last post of socialism. Yes. It's not only, of course, yes. in the private sector that these norms have infiltrated through privatisation. I listened to David Attenborough give an interview the other day, the great naturalist, recalling when he was the director of BBC Two, a television station that was the second BBC network, began in the late 60s, mid-60s. Yeah. Um, his salary was £15,000 a year. Yes. Now, in constant money, that's a fraction of what people doing that job get today. Absolutely. Is BBC Two any good? Yes. No. Was yes. it? Yes. Absolutely, yes. I oh, know, that's absolutely right. That's right. And in fact, actually, of those sort of organisations that haven't been marketised, we still have, of course, the National Health Service and the BBC, but under huge pressures constantly because of this ethos, you know, that the market is better. And spending vast amounts of money on managerialism, absolutely. not on product, uh, sorry, yes. pro product, not on programme making. And I know you've written on this as well. We should not forget our own employers in this, that the universities themselves, uh, there were lots wrong with British universities. I mean, when I went up, there were less than 10% of the age group went. It was wonderful if you got access to those universities at the time, you know, small classes, wonderful resources, and what have you. So I don't want to go back uh, altogether. But what you did see, just to follow up your point, was like differential salaries were nothing like they are now. And so uh, it's been written, I think, in The Guardian this week. One of the uh, uh, journalists uh, has written about university vice-chancellors getting much higher salaries now. A quarter of a million uh, a year, pounds per year, is by no means unusual now. I think, to his embarrassment, um, no, I won't give an example that would embarrass others, but there are... There are uh, some university vice chancellors on over £400,000 per year now. When I went to Oxford Brookes University in 1979, I was then a senior lecturer. And as one does, because they're publicly available, I did notice that the uh, a senior lecturer, by the way, is uh, the first promotion from a lecturer. It's not a very senior position. Sort of like associate professor in exactly, the US. Exactly. But I did notice the then director of Oxford Brookes. It was then Oxford Polytechnic. It later was named the university in 1992. But the then um, director was typical of the uh, vice-chancellors of the time, it had been an Oxford don and had come up. But I think his salary was two and a half times mine. That was all. <laughs> and he was a very distinguished national figure. Uh, today, I'm pretty confident to say that the head of that university will be on yeah, at least seven or eight times more than a lecturer's The interesting thing is that some of these uh, sources of money are soft funding. So I was struck the other day, I'm negotiating with the university at the moment that claims it wants to give me a full-time job, and is, as a contractual requirement, seeking that I raise a certain amount of money from certain kinds of sources yes. over the life of my employment, because those particular kinds of grant-raising sources... Grants, granting sources, provide direct funding to the university rather than to the research. Right. 
Yes, no, it doesn't entirely express me. I mean, to, to make the point about directly about informational aspects of this, because so often one writes about information as if it's something out there, you know, what are happening yeah. to libraries, you know, what's happening to the funding of the BBC, what's happening to the newspaper business, the digitization and so on. But actually, in terms of knowledge, uh, think about universities, because they're really vital knowledge centers. And they have tremendous autonomy still from the market, you know, it's still have distance from but just look at the changes in knowledge formally offered with the last 30 years of pressures of commercialization. On the one hand, there is this differential salaries at the very top, but we're also seeing it within the professoriate quite massively. When I started, one could tell a salary straight away by looking at the scale they were on. You'd know what people were getting. Now, especially at professorial level, it's not there. It's kept very secretive. secretive. But just look at the knowledge that's developed. Business and management now constitute, I understand, 20% British higher education. When I was an undergraduate, they were scarcely on the radar. Why have they developed? One could have made an argument say, oh, business had to professionalize. But another reason is simply these are the sorts of courses that made money, that got students in because getting a degree in business studies, which is basically a bit of economics, a bit of sociology, a bit of political science. I'm not against it per se, but the change in knowledge, the change in the orientation is quite revealing. Actually. And, you and alongside also, it is the decline, relatively at least, of humanities, philosophy. Sure, well you often get that in the context of an expansion of higher education such that there are more and more students entering it who can't afford to be, in a sense, pissing about, yes. learning a liberal education and need to be more instrumental. Plus you've had numerous fiscal crises intervene that mean that even those people who come from the middle class yeah. worry about such things. Can I ask you, Frank, yes. How, yes. we've got about ten minutes left. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to press you back into the pod as soon as possible because I mm -hmm. want to do another, a second one with you about other matters. I'd love to know how you first got interested in this question of information. Okay. And I'm also wondering if you could tell us something about a very important distinction that you've helped to draw over the years between information and knowledge. Mm -hmm. So first of all, okay. how information drew right. you in and when? Um, uh, you know... These things happen with all sorts of uh, accidents. One is I had a very um, checkered early career in that I did a degree in sociology, and then I did a master's by research, which was social history, especially the Durham Miners in the 19th century. And then I did, I moved on to a PhD in the sociology of literature, and they, they seemed, to a certain extent, were quite disparate subject areas. And after I finished my PhD, I then wrote a book on photography and visual communication. And what happened is that um, I got an award to look at, <coughs> um, in, this is in the late 70s, to look at, um, I got a one-year research assistantship position, uh, which I advertised, to look at what I call then very grandly the political economy of photography. Uh, and I was interested in getting away from the end product and looking at the companies like Kodak, you know, and the marketized markets. Of course, what happened then, there was this explosion of interest in uh, technology and in microelectronics. And in going back, that was one strand. And actually, incidentally, I was so lucky that uh, the research assistant who took up the position was Kevin Robbins, who was then school teaching somewhere in Kent and very unhappy with it, I think. And Kevin was just wonderful, uh, wonderful. He came from a background in a PhD in film that he'd done, which I don't think he never completed, but he was... Uh, wonderful, inspiring, and, and an equal from the very start. It's great. 
to work with him. So there was one thing is we were interested in this political economy of photography, and suddenly going back, we're seeing Kodak, we're getting into photocopiers, and then, you know, this smart office, what have you, and we started to try to see this big picture of transformations in what was then called information technology. Um, we were trying to discriminate, you know, from things like view data and the television, uh, television set from the office realm and so forth. Uh, so that's one way. Another way, actually, is, you know, one's intimate life. I'm very interested that Herb was married to a research librarian, Anita Schiller, and I've been married for many, many years, coming up 40 years, um, to a librarian. And, of course, I was hearing lots about information from that end of uh, collection and distribution and with a strong sense of public uh, service. Um, you know, uh, people should have access to information um, free at the point of delivery or at minimal cost and minimal restrictions. And I was quite taken with that. Mm. And of course, mm. that that was just sort of, you know, everyday intimate life. You know, what's been happening at work, dear, and what's and she's saying, you should read this. I used to read the Library Association Record, and uh, which is a monthly professional publication. I don't know if it's even called that anymore. But I once shared that story and I touched a, a very terrific sociologist in Britain called Howard Newby. I have to say now Sir Howard Newby, who uh, is a university vice-chancellor of Liverpool uh, and has had a stellar career. And he said, oh, my wife's a librarian and I read that in bed too. <laughs> well, so there's roots in. I was going to say, so <laughs> what is Faulkner jostling with on the bedside table? I can't read at night. I, I'm... Uh, this is a personal thing about reading as well. I um, I could never work playing music. I'm really impressed by people who have music in the background. I find either listen to the music or work. And similarly, I can't just read a chapter of a book. I have to concentrate. It's my problem. I need the, the blinkers. To be blinkers. The blinkers. But the knowledge and information, yeah. it's not my distinction, actually. Um, uh, but we all play with it. I, mean, oh, I apologise for getting that wrong. No, no, no. But T.S. Eliot wrote about it. Daniel Bell writes about it. I mean, we all know in our hearts there's some sort of distinctions between data, information, knowledge, wisdom, and it's to do with sort of hierarchies of knowledge. Uh, hierarchies, not just of, uh, of knowledge. Um, I think uh, one could give an abstract definition of what they are. You know, data is just numbers, information is some sort of organized, you know, knowledge has got some sort of conceptual framework. Wisdom is a matter about informed choice, about experience and, and uh, 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 judgment and so forth. Uh, I think they're useful on the ground when you're looking at something. And one way I might use those terms, I'm sure they're in the book at points, simply to resist the homogenization of so much difference that is used. You know, when people start talking about an information society, it's very important to turn around and say, well, you know, is reality TV a contribution to our knowledge, you know? Is access even to the internet? And of course I use these things, but I'm a great uh, believer in slow reading. This may be one of the things that, you know, like the slow food movement, it's slow reading. And um, again, it's not my um, term, I wish it was, uh, and the person I owe this to is, I was conning a couple of years uh, uh, through a book by, I've forgotten her first name, Hills. She wrote a play that's on in the West End for many years, uh, uh, which is a 19th century Gothic thriller. But she wrote a book called, which is a book of Apasu really, called uh, Howard's End is on the, uh, 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 on the bend in the 
uh, on the landing, I think, on the stairs on the landing. <laughs> and it's about her serendipitous reading. And uh, her husband is a Shakespearean scholar, Stanley Wells. This woman is a very eminent uh, author, and I recommend her. And uh, she writes in this about taking a year out, and she's in her late 70s, just reading novels and reading them again. And makes many observations. But one of the things she says is the virtues of slow reading. And uh, I took from that because I reflected on it, and it is absolutely the case, and we all do it, you know. I can't remember the resume of Hamlet, so you look it up on Wikipedia, and you immediately back, you know, the plot, you know, of a disconcerted son, stepfather, Lots of angst, stabby, 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 as my daughter would say, everybody dies. And uh, for what you miss out with slow reading, and which is a sad thing, because people are so impatient nowadays, and they say, oh, we've got all this information, we get this resumer, we don't need to read Shakespeare. You get all this lack of plot, metaphor, uh, poses, you know, all the reflections on character. And slow reading is what I would call appreciative reading. It enables you to see lot of time, stabby, lot stabby, of stabby individually. <laughs> <laughs> Frank Webster, thank you very much for joining us. The reason I want to tie you down, as the actress said to the bishop, very soon to another date, is that I want to hear about Times of a Technoculture, mm -hmm. a book you wrote with the aforementioned Kevin Robbins. I want to hear about time in different university posts, and I want to hear about Faulkner again. Does that sound okay? Would thank you do you, Toby. that? I hope so. I hope Love so. It. I hope it's not too boring. No, no, it's exciting. Thanks, Frank.